0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Sci-Fi with Jesse Mercury. This is my year anniversary podcast, and I have something incredibly exciting for you. You're not even going to believe what I have for you this week. I got to chat with Steven Manley, who played young Spock in Star Trek Three, The Search for Spock. And that's coming up right after this. Sci-Fi with Jesse Mercury, a show about the communal experience of loving science fiction. Oh, what a year it has been. My first podcast went up on July 1st of 2015, so this is it. This is the last show of my first year. Booyah! We made it! Going strong in the year two. I'm so pumped about that. I have released, let's see, this is episode 46 of this show. I've also uh, I'm putting out a new Howard the Duck trial today for Sci-Fi on Trial. That'll be eight episodes of that show, so that's a total of... 54 podcasts in a year.
1: Holy shit, that's a lot.
0: I'm proud of that. I don't know why I started the show, but uh, I don't know why I'm doing this show. I love it. I love it so much. It really keeps me going. I'm just producing content constantly. This has opened up so many incredible doors. I've got to host the Star Trek opening party at the EMP. I got to host the Star Wars closing party at EMP. I got to talk to I got to talk to Steven Manley today. That's incredible. I talked to Manu and to Raimi. I talked to Hana Hate, uh, actress from Star Trek. I've had so many great conversations on this show, highlights, including reading I Have No Mouth and I Must Screen with Anika Sila. talking about Star Trek The Next Generation with Audrey and, our, and the rest of our friends as we go through the rest of the series, which is definitely going to continue. Um, man, it's just been a really magical, incredible experience. I've learned a lot about myself in the last year. Uh, talking and then listening to myself after has been... A really interesting experience culminating in last week's episode when I did an entire episode by myself, and I got so much great feedback from that episode. It was really wonderful to hear from all of you. I actually heard people say that they want that more often, so I will definitely do that more often, uh, do solo episodes. But the core of this show is going to remain the conversations that I have with uh, with people about science fiction, just What can we talk about? You know, we love sci-fi. We love it together. What are we going to talk about? That's the adventure to me. That's what I'm excited to discover in the future. And of course, talking to people who are actually part of popular science fiction is one of the ultimate expressions of that. Which is coming up in just a couple minutes with Stephen Manley. Before we get to that, I have to say a couple of words about what I talked about last week. Huge developments in the Star Trek fan film saga. There was all this legal trouble with Axanar, and then it looked like CBS was dropping the lawsuit. Well, what we didn't know at the time is that they were about to institute incredibly constrictive rules about what you can and can't do for a fan film. So since my episode came out last week... Uh, Star Trek.com has posted up a list of regulations for what you have to do in order to be uh, not sued, basically, by CBS for making a fan film. So let's take a look at some of these. Uh, this one's rough The fan production must be less than 15 minutes for a single self-contained story And no more than two segments, episodes or parts Not to exceed 30 minutes total With no additional seasons, episodes, parts, sequels or remakes Damn, that's rough So uh, like Star Trek Continues, Star Trek New Voyages uh, All these things that we're trying to make new episodes of the original series Done, can't do it anymore Unless they make it 15 minutes long I'm going to read you a couple more of these that I found particularly interesting. If the fan production uses commercially available Star Trek uniforms, accessories, toys, and props, these items must be official merchandise and not bootleg items or imitations of such commercially available products. Weird. It's a weird rule. So basically, if you're going to make a Star Trek fan film, if they're going to wear uniforms, you've got to buy one from Star Trek.com. This is the last one I'll read to you. This one kind of bummed me out the most. A fan production must be a real quote-unquote fan production, i.e. creators, actors, and all other participants must be amateurs, cannot be compensated for their services, and not, cannot be currently or previously employed on any Star Trek series, films, production of DVDs, or with any of CBS or Paramount Pictures licensees. So there goes Star Trek Renegades, guys. I don't know, that's a bummer. Uh, I mean, we talked to Hanahate earlier in the year about how she was gonna be reprising her role as Molly O'Brien on Star Trek Renegades. Looks like that's not gonna happen. Although I have been following the tweets and the website for Star Trek Renegades, and it looks like all of the actors are now playing different characters. So I think that maybe it's just Renegades now. I'm not 100% sure. I haven't been able to get uh, confirmation on this, but it looks like they're just making a show called Renegades with a whole bunch of Star Trek actors playing new characters. Aaron Eisenberg was supposed to reprise his role of Nog, which I was so excited about because Nog's like my favorite character. And now he's playing a new character with different makeup. So uh, I think that's what's happening is they're just making something called Renegades now. No longer the sequel to Star Trek Renegades that they were going to do, but uh, maybe they'll take the script, change everyone's name, and put something new out. That might be what's happening. I don't know what's up with Axanar because all of these rules are basically tailor-made to shut down Axanar. So last week I was all excited because it looks like CBS was not going to be getting in the way of these fan films anymore. Um, and I have to say, of course, I totally understand that uh, CBS owns Star Trek and they have the rights to Star Trek. And uh, I I don't know. It seems really constrictive to me to not allow fans to make what they want and release it for free. It's not, I mean, if they're not making any money off of it, it's not being released in a big screen. I don't know. I don't see the harm in that besides the fact that it keeps the Star Trek Uh, fan experience alive. Star Trek would have gone away so many times if it weren't for the fans. Let the fans express that in any way they want. Um, That's something that I feel very passionate about. But you know what could happen because of this? Let's look on the bright side. Maybe... All of these Star Trek actors will get together and do more things like The Fifth Passenger, where they make original science fiction material, and you get some of these Star Trek names behind it. So as much as I love Star Trek, what I really love is science fiction. Let's just keep making more of it. Let's have these fan productions continue, and maybe we just have to be a little more creative in how we go about it. Uh, Renegades seems to be finding a way around all of these rules, so good for them. Life will move forward. We'll keep on having new sci-fi. Life will be good. Guys, did you hear that James Earl Jones is definitely reprising the voice of Darth Vader in Star Wars Rogue One? Holy shit. Can't believe it. So excited. I have to say thank you to a couple people. Uh, Buck Redbuck is new to the show. He just started listening recently, but he has been uh, sharing it nonstop. He bought the sci-fi album, and he's been contacting me saying how much he loves it. So, Buck, thank you so much for listening. We are so happy to have you joining into our, our community of sci-fi enthusiasts. Someone who's been listening that I wanted to thank on the air, Stephen Tabor. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Uh, he tweeted me this week saying that he was driving down the road listening to the episode from last week. And when I said, OK, Google, it actually triggered his phone <laughs> and searched for the Star Trek Beyond trailer on his phone. So apparently my voice has the power to activate his phone. We must have similar voices of some kind. But, uh, oh, wow. Now my <laughs> I just activated my own phone accidentally. Now my phone just searched for, let's see it searched for, oh my God, this whole sentence. So yeah, okay, Google, watch out for that. That's a, oh, sorry. <laughs> now my phone is searching for watch out for that. And it brought up Disney's George of the Jungle. Watch out for that. <laughs> That's a strange thing. So uh, Google's listening, guys. That's interesting. And of course, there's so many, I can't thank everyone. It would take too long. There's so many of you listening now and and uh, contacting me and it's a wonderful, beautiful thing that that you and I have with this show, and I am so excited to continue it. I'm also just incredibly grateful that you take the time to enjoy the show, man. What can I say besides thank you? And onward into year two. Here we go, guys. I talked to Spock. Talked to Spock today. Of course, this happened through Evan at From the Wastes on Twitter. If you're not following Evan, go follow Evan. Uh, my, uh, I've had several people refer to him now as the guy that I talk about all the time on the show. Yes, that's Evan. Evan tweeted at Stephen Manley randomly and said, Hey, you should come on this sci-fi podcast. Cause it'd be great. And then Stephen responded and said, sure. And then I wrote to him immediately, uh, and said, Oh my God, I'd love to have you on the show. So Evan made this happen. Stephen was incredibly gracious in agreeing to be on the show. I couldn't even believe that this happened. It just happened. It happened so quickly. Uh, and then I just finished recording with him, and now I'm going to release it for you right now, today, to celebrate the one-year anniversary of this show. Just a quick note about Skype interviews before we get into this one with Steven. All of the other Skype interviews that I've done, they called me on voice chat only, not video chat. So that's what I assumed was going to happen today, that we just do um, a voice chat. And I'm, don't get me wrong, I was super excited to talk to everyone that I've talked to on Skype via voice chat, but it does make it a little bit harder to talk to someone that you've never met before when you can't see their face and you get that read of body language from them. But that's just something that I very quickly got used to and assumed was the way things were done. So today I just assumed that we would do a phone chat. I didn't think for a second that we'd do a video chat because I assumed that this is just how it's done. I was incredibly surprised and Overjoyed to see that uh, Stephen Manley called me on video chat because we got to see each other. We got to talk more face to face than we would have otherwise. And it really helped with the interview. And also, it was just a very giving thing of him to do. Now I now recognize that that's not normal. So that got things off to a really good start. He's a very warm, open, awesome person and the perfect guy to spend my year anniversary of podcasting with great conversation got to hear what it was like to be on set to be directed by leonard nimoy how fucking cool is this okay my friends let's kick into this with some of the music from star trek 3 to set the mood let's hear what it was like to play young spock morning
2: good morning jesse how are you
0: good how are you doing
2: is that a picture of you with a microphone?
0: That is. Hold on. Let me get this video going.
2: <laughs> there you go. There we go. All right. The other one, you do look like a rock star.
0: Oh, uh, thank you. <laughs> that means a lot coming from you.
2: All right. And now you, you, you're a radio DJ.
0: Yeah. Now I'm ready to go. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for joining me.
2: Nice to meet you.
0: I'm so excited to talk Absolutely. to you.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah. This is a real, real treat for me. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. So you're calling me from Las Vegas. Is that where you live now? Uh, Yes.
2: I split my time between Las Vegas and Los Angeles. I work in Los Angeles. My family's up here in Vegas where they're roasting now under 115 degree heat. Oh, wow. (laughs) Tell me about your family. Oh, uh, my wife, Carrie, and uh, my little girl, Morgana. Uh, Morgana. Yeah, would probably ring a bell, huh? Yeah, that's an awesome uh, name. Yeah, she's nine now. Wow. And uh, when when we found out we were having a little girl, I wanted to give her a very, very powerful name, and I couldn't think of anybody more powerful than Morgana.
0: Nice. How long have you been married?
2: Uh, We have been, well, we've been together for 20 years. We're going to celebrate our 20-year anniversary this September. Wow. yeah, we've actually been legally married
0: for 4. <laughs> well, congratulations. That's super cool.
2: So, we lived in sin for 16 and then we've been married for 4. Yeah.
0: <laughs> awesome. So, uh so of course I know you as as one of the young Spock's the main, the most prominent young Spock from Star Trek 3: The Search for Spock. But you're also a veteran actor. You've uh you've done some filmmaking of your own. Um, I looked through your credits and you've done a lot of stuff, especially in the last couple of years. So you're a busy guy. So tell me about yourself. I'd love to hear from you what you're up to. Oh,
2: okay. Terrific. Uh, How far do you... You want me to go back? There's like decades I can go back.
0: Let's go. Uh, I mean, let's go all the way back. We'll have a coffee together. Uh, Cheers. (laughs)
2: Cheers. (laughs) (laughs) I got into the industry through my uh, I'm adopted, uh, but uh, my adopted mom, uh, her father came over from Italy and he actually started in silent films. And uh, he was one of D.W. Griffith's Roman soldiers in the movie Intolerance. And so he worked as a character actor for many, many years. And uh, he lived with us after his wife passed away. And since he was my main influence in my life, not my parents, <laughs> I'd often find him making a nose putty nose or doing sleight of hand magic or screening one of his films. He had a projector looking through his portfolio. I would see him with all kinds of movie stars, you know, everybody from, uh, my gosh, Gene Kelly and Singing in the Rain and Jack Lemon and Irma LaDuce and the Marx Brothers And night at the opera. So when I turned six years old, he took me down to the Screen Actors Guild and spoke in Italian to the president of SAG. And you could do that back in the early (laughs) seventies. I walked out of there with a SAG card. Wow. uh, At six years old. Wow. Yes. And a lady saw me on a talent show called Juvenile Jury. And that was back in 1970, 71. And she was a talent agent named Dorothy DeOtis, who handled a lot of people, uh, prominent people. And she took me on and I began to audition and I, I started working and I basically grew up at Universal and Warner Brothers Studios all through the 70s. Wow. And uh, that was a great experience. And uh, I'm fortunate to have gone through it and seen Universal in kind of its heyday when they were doing Earthquake. And I was in the Hindenburg and You'd see Gage and DeSoto in the commissary, and, you know, it was, it was a great period of time. And uh, then uh, I attended the Beverly Hills Playhouse after, uh, after I had graduated from high school and got my first real good taste of method acting. <laughs> and, uh, I had encountered some, some really wonderful actors, you know, growing up as a teenager and as a child. I worked with Tommy Lee Jones. Wow. I played him as a young guy. Really? Yeah, in a TV movie he did called Howard the Amazing Mr. Hughes. And we had a scene together where he's talking to himself as a kid of about 12 years old. And I remember (laughs) vividly us spending time together on a railroad track because he wanted to pick up my mannerisms and he wanted me to pick up his and – You know, so I had been exposed to that type of thing before, and uh, I really enjoyed the playhouse. Afterwards, I went to uh, the Art Center College of Design to learn filmmaking, fine art, and expand my horizons. And, and, uh, you know, uh, sometimes life takes you in different directions. This, This was all just after I did Star Trek III, which was a great experience that I carry. To this day. Yeah. And we could talk about that, too, if you want. Uh, We (laughs) got it. Last few years has been going gangbusters for me. Yeah. But but the image of the dying European war orphan, you know, that I used to play all the time or the kid with rickets or a disease or a speech impediment or polio or, you know, I died from a whole bunch of different (laughs) weird illnesses and stuff seems to have changed. Yeah. And I have played everything from a Hells Angels biker in the 70s. One of my favorites, I played Charlie Beaudry, Billy the Kid's best friend for Kevin Costner Project mm-hmm. for National Geographic. I got shot to death at the end <laughs> of it. Uh, that was a great, great project to do. And uh, uh, good friends of mine, Neil Johnson and Tracy Burtzall, uh Rogue Warrior Robot Fighter, which is due later out, And then Ghost Hunters. Yeah. Wow, man. That's coming out on, on the 5th of July. Uh, I play a scientist in that, a very tormented scientist. So, hey, you know, as an actor, you're grateful for any and all work.
0: Yeah. And the
2: work the last couple of years has been awesome.
0: I watched uh, trailers for those last two you mentioned last night, and Ghost Hunters huh? looks amazing. Ghost yes. Hunters looks really, really good. And yeah. I watched I watched quite a bit of footage of you acting, and you have real chops. Like, you're a real actor. I mean, you're not... <laughs> I mean, you're obviously a pretty face as well, but you've got oh. like the talent. <laughs> um, yeah, you got the talent to back it up. I'm—I was really impressed with your work, and of Thank course, you. I mean, of course, I've seen you as Spock, mm-hmm. and I mean, you were Spock in the, maybe the two most iconic moments in that film. Of mm. uh, the most iconic moment being the Pon Far scene. Mm-hmm. You are the young Spock who discovered his his sexuality, basically. Oh
2: yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, I'll elaborate for you. <laughs> Please do. I had been in a series in 1981 and two, uh, written by a friend of mine, uh, who gave me a gift and wrote me as one of the uh, the, the leads in this series that went for about. A year. It's called The Secrets of Midland Heights. And I had a very, again, sensitive moment in this thing with a wonderful actress named Zora Lampert, who was renowned for her stage work. She got an Emmy for an episode of Kojak uh, that became very famous. And uh, she's still alive. She's a wonderful lady. And Leonard Nimoy had seen that. Mm. And he knew he wanted Ponfar in that film During the audition, they didn't tell me that it was Spock coming back because it was a big secret, you know, back then. But uh, after I kind of put the pieces together, he took me aside, spent about an hour with me at his office, Hmm. and he said, you know how important this is going to be? He said, you're going to carry a big responsibility. Are you ready for it? He said, not only that, you're playing me as a younger guy, but all you have is your emotions. You don't have intellect or anything yet. So we spoke an awful lot about how I was to play the part, what he wanted out of me. Uh, it was a really uh, wonderful collaborative process with him. And then I saw who was playing Savick. And yeah. Robin Curtis was a model uh. before she was an actress. And she was famous for uh, a series of oil of commercials. I remember that. Oh, I didn't so even finding know that. my sexuality as a young 18-year-old <laughs> guy with beautiful oil of Olay model was not that hard to do. (laughs) And and, uh, uh, when we went to go and shoot those scenes, Leonard had said, now we've never shown, we implied about it in the TV show, but we've never shown it. And we took a lot of time quite a lot of time in rehearsal with the crew around and everything exploring it. And Robin's a great lady. She's very passionate, uh, very, very expressive. So she had to keep a cap on a lot of her emotions and the way that she expressed things. Yeah. But nevertheless, such a passionate passion, things bled through and uh, we had to figure out all of that. Pon far <laughs> with Leonard and choreograph it. I tell all my fans at the Star Trek convention, and yes, I pawn far with every lady fan who comes <laughs> up to the table. There was more, and I vividly remember it. So they edited quite a lot down uh, for the movie, and I, I always told my fans I remember Robin caressing my face, and they said, "Gee, we've never seen that." And just as as Leonard passed away last year, my wife found a picture and. Sure enough, Robin had her hands on my face and Leonard Nimoy was right there, you know, choreographing the whole thing. And I I really am grateful to him because he said when they cut the film together, some of the executives at Paramount at the time who weren't really sensitive to Star Trek. I mean, they knew Star Trek, obviously everybody knows Star Trek, but they started laughing at the scene before the film was done Mm -hmm. and they wanted it cut out. Wow he fought for it and wow. he said absolutely not that has to stay in there it's too important so i'm really grateful
0: yeah it's so it. important i mean for fans of the original series we already know that ponfar is going to happen so if you're watching right. spock get older he has to go through that it'd yes. be like uh, it'd be like not having someone go through puberty you know it it's right. it, it would right. be a crazy thing to cut out and it's a yes. it's a great callback to the original series it really ties everything together but it's also a really powerful emotional moment where you have uh, you know, Savick who uh, really respects Spock as much as as possible for a Vulcan and maybe even loves Spock in a Vulcan way, mm-hmm. watching this character uh, go through their own rebirth and having to be the person that's there for him at that moment, where mm-hmm. I mean, he could die if she he, he could die if she doesn't basically have sex with him, which right. is a a really interesting story moment, but it was played with such uh care. And directed mm-hmm. with such care. And I mean, all, all of the acting, everything about that scene, I think is beautiful. I love it so much. And it's very subtle and it's just what the movie needs. And I, I really love it. Terrific.
2: I, I'm so happy. Uh, it's one of the few parts that I've done throughout my career where I didn't have dialogue. But Lon Chaney was Always a big influence of mine. My grandfather knew him, and uh, you know, I've always, my God, Lon Chaney. And of course, he was going to make a transition to talkies, but he passed away before they they could do that. He had a wonderful voice. So did Buster Keaton's So a lot of a lot of those guys. They had no problem going into sound, but there was so much I felt I could bring to that, uh, where it just wasn't. A, you know, uh, a cliche moment. And Robin and I, every single morning at five o'clock, would get, you know, to the studio and have to go into makeup. And uh, they had some pretty famous makeup guys putting our ears on and getting us ready, you know, uh, in our character makeup. And you get close. You, you get close to people. Yeah. So even though you're in character, Robin's still looking at Steven, Stevens Stephen's still looking at Robin, and they're still – communication with your eyes. And like I said, she's a very, very passionate lady. At the time, she used to smoke clove cigarettes. Mm. So if I needed to find her, I just needed to follow the trail of the scent of the (laughs) the (laughs) clove, wherever it was that she was sitting on that soundstage. And, uh, you know, it's a great scene. I'm very proud of it. And I I tried to uh, give as much as I could, and she picked up on that. And came in to help me out.
0: Yeah. Have you been in experiences as an actor where the opposite happened, where you're trying to give as much as you can and you're not getting it back from the person you're in a scene against?
2: No, that's never happened to me. Wow, that's uh, I've great. been fortunate. I've worked with some great uh, people and even people who don't seem to have a lot of experience or the years and the background that I do. You can always work with people to make a scene better. Uh, I also uh, have taught classes from time to time uh milton kitzelis and bill howie who were my coaches at the beverly hills playhouse instilled really good work ethic in me along with my grandfather who gave me a good work ethic but you're always able to work with people to make the scene as best as it possibly can you can work on things when you're at the craft service table and none of the crew even knows that you're working on it You can work on it in a very low tone, and people just think that you're talking. And you'd be surprised what communication comes out of a lot of those rehearsals. I'm a big fan of rehearsing something. You can't rehearse it too much. You can just keep working it all the time, like a sculpture, like a painting. Uh, Acting is no different. You've got to saturate all of those moments.
0: Interesting. So you you never get to a point with acting where you feel like uh, you've rehearsed it too much, and then it becomes uh premeditated and you, do you ever lose any of that spark? I see you shaking your head, no.
2: No, I don't. I mm. don't. I know that there are other actors who who feel that way, but every single time a curtain goes up or the camera rolls, you've got to infuse it with the energy yeah. that made the scene what it was. And new things do happen. Yeah. New things do happen. Interesting. You know? I'll give you something funny. At one part uh, I do remember Robin saying, can't I show this and can't I show that? And Leonard Nimoy said, no, let's have a conference. And both of them went off to the side smoking cigarettes, <laughs> going over how Savick was going to, you know, take care of Spock in wow. that moment. And I don't know exactly what was said, uh, but at one point, Robin took her cigarette, threw it down and said, OK, <laughs> <She> <laughs> came right into the scene. With me, and Leonard was like,
0: wow, there you go. Oh, that's so interesting what a great story so your other super iconic moment in the film is you're in the scene where uh, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen Star Trek 3 where David is killed where Kirk's son is mm-hmm. killed and the mm-hmm. three of you are held up by Klingons and Christopher Lloyd is there uh, do you have any memories yes. of that day and of working with Christopher Lloyd
2: I ha- I could be here for three hours your radio show would be its own special alright <laughs> uh, I remember everything that happened on that set I had a lot of friends who were crew members on that as well. So Uh I had known some people, so it was very comfortable for me. I remember Christopher Lloyd under his makeup. Uh, He was standing off to the side, often constantly going over his lines, constantly. He had them all memorized and I knew not to bother him. He smiled at me and looked at me, but then I realized, you know, you could see his mouth moving. (laughs) <laughs> Just it was constantly going. This is very important for him because he was playing a villain. You know, he did a lot of comedy up, up to that point in, yeah. in Taxi and, and everything. So this was a, a very important role for him to do. And he didn't want it to fall into being a cartoon. He, he was very, very concerned about that. Uh, I remember uh, uh, Merritt on the set uh, quite a bit. I also remember his stunt double uh, <laughs> because he did have a stunt double f- for the fights and everything, because the set had a lot of rocks on it, a lot yeah. of lava rock and real rock. There were portions of the set that could open up so that the fire would come through trap doors and everything. Uh, so they didn't want Merritt, you know, it only takes a second to throw your back out, even if you're in good shape, like he was at the time. You know? But I do remember the day that Merritt got stabbed. Yeah. And everybody went. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah.
0: Was but that it, like not in the script? Did you know that was coming?
2: We knew that he was going to get killed. We didn't know what his reaction was going to be when they, when the Klingons stabbed him.
0: Yeah, you know. I love Merritt Buttrick in that movie, I, and and in uh, *Rathakan* as well. I think he's such a great actor, and he was in an episode of *The Next Generation* as well. And it's so sad. It? Yeah, it's so sad how young he passed away.
2: Yeah, yeah. A lot of people in the eighties. Yeah, you know, it's it really, terrible. really, yeah, it was terrible. But I, I do remember. Uh, everything uh, that happened on the star Trek three set. Well, another thing that was interesting was the cinematographer and Leonard, you know, there was a decision, the whole thing was shot on sound stages with the exception of one shot, one or two shots that happened at Occidental college in Eagle rock in LA. So everything was shot on a stage. So it very much felt a call, you know, a throwback to the original series, which had so much shot on the stages. Totally. On the different planets that they were on. So I, I do remember when they were looking at the dailies discussing that. And I think it added to the look
0: to the look of the film. I agree. I think it's beautiful. Uh, I think it's incredibly well shot. The lighting is amazing. Yes. Um, and I love, I love the way that that movie was directed. It's a very somber film, whereas yes. The Wrath of Khan is very exciting. Uh, and, you know, kind of this balls to the wall adventure story. Uh, Search for Spock is very emotional, and it's plotted a little bit slower, and it didn't uh, it didn't really hit me until I was an adult how great of a film it was. I think as a kid, I actually loved the motion picture the best because it's this crazy space opera. And uh-huh. I was like, the, ra- the violence in Wrath of Khan was off-putting to me. But it's funny, as an adult, I love them all so much. As an adult, Ooh. Wrath of Khan became one of my favorite movies ever because it's a sure. film about aging it's about these characters getting older and having to deal with that and then all of that comes to a head in the search for spock where you watch you know captain kirk lose his son and mm-hmm. i've heard william shatner say that he thinks the finest moment of all of captain kirk is the you Klingon bastard you killed my son oh, moment yeah that so that's the best moment that's ever been put on celluloid for captain kirk and mm-hmm. it's so interesting mm-hmm. and you were right there you're right in the middle of it and i mean for me this is the closest that i've ever gotten to being um a part of the Star Trek motion pictures. It's so cool. Oh, yeah! Wow. Are you a are you a sci fi fan? Did you know about Star Trek before this? Oh, these? yes. Yeah. Oh,
2: sure, absolutely. You know, I'm a big uh, science fiction fan. I love Logan's Run mm. with Michael York. I love that you movie. Yeah. I love Westworld. I love Yul Brynner in that film. It's a. It, I, I'm a. Big fan of James Kahn's Rollerball. I think it's a scary movie, beautifully designed. Uh, It actually has one of the best DVD commentaries by the director, Norman Jewison, of any film I've I've ever seen. It's like one of the best commentaries I've ever heard. Uh, Really gets into the world, the philosophy, what they were trying to go into. So I love that that stuff. I'm a big fan of Escape from New York. I love Kurt Russell in that film. Wouldn't everybody love... To be macho like that, you know? It's <laughs> one of my heroes. But when I got this job uh for Star Trek three, of course it was video cassette at the time, I went and got all, you know, the first two Star Trek films so that I could brush up and kind of know where I was coming into the picture. Yeah. Even though Leonard had said, Your mind is gone, you've gotta react with instinct, I did throw in a couple of mannerisms that I thought would. Would make it consistent and give continuity that it is Spock, <laughs> so that when you saw him later on, there was something there. One of those things that I did, and by the way, I'm very gr- grateful. I got the lion's share of all the young Spocks. There were four of us. Yeah. Uh, I often get mistaken for the guy who chucked the Klingon before <laughs> he turned into uh, Leonard Nimoy. That was an actor named Joe Davis who who did the transition from me to Leonard, yeah. and uh, I go down. He comes up, up. <laughs> he chucks the Klingon, he goes back down, and then it's Leonard, right? Yeah. But uh, if you notice, when the Klingon is walking the line with his knife behind Merritt, myself, and Robin, and he's going to kill Robin, for a quick second, when he's passing by my face, you just saw me raise my uh. eyebrow. Slight. <laughs>
0: <laughs> just that's fantastic like, i'm
2: gonna go look for I that now i figured that would i figured that would have been something you know even instinctually that was like i don't want to say it was a yeah it was a mannerism yeah. that was very characteristic of of leonard and when he saw me do that he looked at me and he came up to me and he said it works cool. uh, i believe that nice. that's he said that's just enough you know, because it was very slight. So wow. there you go. Wow, that was method acting right there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so do you do you consider yourself a method actor?
2: You know, there's many different methods, but I guess any actor that goes from the inside out, yeah, you could. That's a general term you could call for everybody.
0: Yeah, you know? my my general understanding of method acting is that you try. Tell me if I'm. I don't know if I'm correct here, but you try mm-hmm. to put yourself in. The moment, as much as possible, you try to live inside of the character, mm-hmm. so it's not yes. you reacting; it's the character reacting. Is that correct?
2: Correct. There's always a combination of both because it's coming through you
0: mm-hmm. and
2: you as a person, but trying to make that moment as realistic as possible by using everything you can with your senses, with your mind, with your you know tactile, with, uh, with you know, and emotions, and how you would react under that situation. And that's, you know, in a small way, when the eyebrow raised up, when he walked by me with a knife, you know, that's just a small, a small portion that I could give to that whole thing.
0: Yeah. It seems like you'd have to really let go of all of your ego to, to be a method actor, to really let Mm -hmm. the character come through you. Because I, um, I know a lot of people who do a lot of stage stuff and a lot of people get into it. Uh, I mean, you know, I get on stage and play rock music all the time because of my <laughs> ego. You know, a lot of us have huge yeah. egos. So to put yourself in a position where you're letting go of yourself and letting a character come through, I think that's amazing. I really respect that a lot. I think that's super cool. It's It
2: It can be very difficult to do. Ghost Hunters was murder, really? no pun intended, <laughs> in, in that regard. Yeah, that's, that's one of the hardest roles I've had to do uh hmm. just for instance also uh, before like, we talk about ghost hunters like for Billy the kid yeah uh, to what I understood, uh, the gang that he rode with the regulators that he formed to go to war against the bad guy everybody thought oh Billy the kid he's a bad guy Billy the kid was actually a hero and not many people realized that he really fought for the people and the people who were getting squashed you know yeah. by this over oppressive, rich institution that was in New Mexico. They killed Billy's boss damn near right in front of him. They gunned him down in a a ravine, and that's when he went to war against them, and they said, oh, he's an outlaw. So anyway, the the research that I did on all of those characters, and especially on mine, Charlie Bowdry, I talked to a museum down in New Mexico, and they were kind enough to send me a lot of stuff on Charlie. And I had to constantly keep that going through my system while I was working on that in order to give you know an honorable performance to Charlie and also you know enhance the performance and make it as real as possible when we were shooting as a result of all of that research the full death of Charlie Baudry at the end of that that uh, that special they shot on the fly it wasn't in the script really it was it was something I had researched and had approached the director about, while you know, we were all getting tested by the stuntman on the horses, you know, to make sure we were macho enough to ride. (laughs) And uh, they weren't going to shoot that scene. And then on the very last day before we were to shoot the last scene, they came up to me and they said, "Uh uh-uh, we sketched it out. We want that whole thing where Charlie says, I wish, I wish, because they shot him. They thought he was Billy and he dropped dead right in front of Pat Garrett and that's how they caught uh, Billy so all that came out of that research
0: very cool I mean you're obviously you're obviously a professional you obviously have studied what you're doing you know what you're doing you bring a sense of authority and professionality to set and I can I can see that when I watch uh footage of you acting I mean when I watch Ghost Hunters Uh I was like this is so cool I get to talk to this guy tomorrow because like look at him he's he's doing it for real this is uh this is the real deal
2: well, here you go. Here, here's method acting for you. My grandfather <laughs> passed away uh, on the last week that I was on a feature film, The Hindenburg. Wow. I was, I was one of the young kids that was part of the family that took the last voyage of The Hindenburg. And at the very end, we all jump out of the Zeppelin. Right? Uh, but my grandfather is, is buried in a mausoleum in Los Angeles. And I've been going to visit him. You know, every time I'm up for an audition or I've got to run lines and I'll just kind of put that camping chair in there and we'll sit and go over the material together, ah, cool. so to speak. And that's what I did at length for Ghost House because I had two screen tests in person for that. Uh-huh. And there was so much dialogue uh, to go along with it uh, that I felt I needed to run that with Grandpa Soldi, you know. Uh, My wife and I, unfortunately, have also been through some medical issues. She's in remission, thank God. But there were portions of the character of Dr. Henry Tanner for Ghost Hunters that really went down the same paths that I've had to look at that weren't very pretty. So I had to bring all of that to the character. And Perry Teo, the director, he said, go for it. He said, bring all of that to the table uh, for it. So, um,
0: how does that affect you emotionally when you bring all this stuff out? Cause you, if you're living inside of that character, you're living inside mm-hmm. of these things that must've been difficult to go through in real life. You have to go through it again. Is mm-hmm. there, uh, does that bring you down or does that give you some sort of catharsis?
2: Well, it gives me a catharsis because I'm able to put it into my, into an art form. Yeah, you
0: know? totally. I, I, I love that.
2: All I think all painters, all sculptors, playwrights, you know, photographers, you know, art's a very passionate thing. Yeah. And a lot of the time, it's not very easy to do. <laughs> Acting may look easy. And again, I'm not breaking concrete and I'm not, you know, stacking cinder block. I'm not doing hard manual labor. Yeah. But it's mental, it's emotional. And there were some scenes in Ghost House where I thought my chest was going to blow up. <laughs> uh, there's a, the scenes at the climax of the film were the the two actresses who were the leads uh, along with me, Liz Finning and uh, Francesca uh, Santoro. Boy, it was a heavy, heavy moment and Perry didn't want clichés in the film. And since it was a small cast... In this beautiful location, this old house in the West Adams area of L.A. that was built at the turn of the century, I think 1902 or 1903, with these little secret rooms. And, you know, it had turrets and Tudor, you know, stained glass. It's just gorgeous place. We all drew on the place itself. We stayed true to our characters. And the last scenes of that film are so emotional. Emotionally amped, that we were all really exhausted afterwards. Uh, but out of all of that, that emotional strife, some great material came out of it. Yeah. And I know that uh, uh, Asylum has done some—I don't want to say tongue-in-cheek films, I, you know—but that they, they—they're known for some certain styles. The whole crew on, on Ghost Hunters once they saw that scene shot, which was on the second day of shoot, they said, uh oh." we're making a different film than we're used to. We haven't seen this before. Wow. And all the performances in the movie are, are really kicking it up there. I mean, they're really, really good. Everybody brought it to the table. You know, uh, Crystal Webb, David O'Donnell, who's from Australia, great guy, played my my protege in it. it there was some really heavy emotional moments in, in Ghost Hunters that I'm proud of.
0: Awesome. I can't wait to see it. The trailer looks fantastic. And it comes out, uh, like next week, doesn't it? July? Yes, uh,
2: July July fifth. Video on demand, uh, VMAO, Amazon, and it should be on one of the channels: Fear.net, Sci Fi Fuse, something like that.
0: Awesome. And um, DVD.
2: Yeah. <laughs> what's, a DVD? <laughs> yeah what's a DVD? Yeah. What's a DVD? It's coming out on Betamax. <laughs>
0: Uh, tell me about uh, Rogue Warrior. It looks like you're playing sort of a Kurt Russell type badass like adventurer in that movie. He is also a scientist. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, uh,
2: Doctor Ralston, and uh, it was a great project. Uh, Neil Johnson's created some wonderful worlds in his other movies. This one, he seems to top. Uh, the worlds that he's created, he's put a lot of work into the visual of rogue Warrior, Robot Fighter. Uh, they're in the deserts. Uh, they're in uh, you know locations everywhere, from the Trona Pinnacles to the the ruins in the Salt Sea. It's a great, uh, great looking project, yeah. and I got to work with some great people. Uh, Neil and I have become very very close. He's like family. So is Tracy Birdsall, a wonderful lady. Uh, plays the lead in that film, mm-hmm. and she does a terrific job. My God, she works out so much; she could kick my ass uh, in a second. You see, uh, <laughs> Daz Crawford, uh, who people may know from Agents of Shield, he's also in it. William Kircher from The Hobbit uh, was also uh, with us. It's a great, great movie. We had some great people on that, so I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing that as well. It's it's great to be a part of a. A sci-fi film like that
0: Yeah You talked about playing uh, All these sick kids That were killed all the time And now you're playing These uh, leading roles Uh, What does that feel like To be at this point In your career And to be doing this To becoming basically What you idolized When you were a kid It's it's wonderful
2: (laughs) uh, You know Every actor Not every A lot You know Your career goes up there's lulls and trying to survive the lows is the hardest part. Yeah. And when I was at the playhouse, I could do some wonderful things, but I was the youngest person accepted to the Beverly Hills playhouse at the time before I went to art center. And for a while I did both, you know, uh, filmmaking at art center and the playhouse, uh, during breaks in the trimesters from the art center. Um, and trying to survive those low points, can be difficult. Uh, It can be difficult. And they had both told me years back, they said, Steve, you have to age into yourself a little bit. He said, you're capable of some of these wonderful things, but you look too young. You've been a child actor, a teen actor, the roles, the types of things that you're good at, you're not old enough to play them yet, but yet you still look like the artful Dodger from Oliver Twist, you know? (laughs) So go out and get some more life experience. And then when you are able to start bringing that to the table, you'll kind of come together with the roles you can play and yourself, and you'll probably come back. And it took a lot longer than I thought it would take.
1: Mm.
2: Uh, but the, I wouldn't trade the journey for the world anymore at this point. Yeah. But I've been able to bring an awful lot to the table for these guys I've been playing. You know. And I'm very, very grateful for it.
0: Yeah. I mean, all this experience and uh, being able to be a professional, if you're leading a cast, that probably uh, adds so much to the entire movie. I mean, I always relate everything to Star Trek. I've read so much about how Patrick Stewart was not just the captain of the show, but kind of the, the leader of the actors. And everyone kind of looked at yes. him to set the tone.
2: Yes, Well, you know, who speaks a lot about that is Michael Caine. He's got Mm. two wonderful books on his life story that he's written. And uh, he also has a book for actors, just a very simple book. You know, it's about this big and it's called Acting in Film. And he talks about uh, a lot of things that other places don't really bring up. And one of those things is if you're the star of of a movie, it's also your responsibility to keep that set a good working environment as much as possible. Yeah. Uh, You know, because that's just one of your jobs. And he's absolutely right about that. And uh, Ghost Hunters was a very, very heavy emotional film. All all the characters had huge parts. I mean, soliloquies of dialogue. And, you know, in order to infuse all of that with emotion and passion, took a lot of skill on everybody's part so that everybody just wasn't a talking head. Because all of those uh, words everybody was saying, meant something so when we weren't shooting we were in you know in another room going over our characters the backgrounds instead of this you know made for a great working environment and the crew was very anxious to see what else was coming out you know in the next scene and Perry did a great job with us too he, he really worked with us uh, on our characters we were able to bounce ideas off of him a lot at one point I had a, a speech and front of all the different characters coming up on the climax of the film. And I was talking to Perry, who was having a cigarette out in front of that house with his characteristic cowboy hat, his directing hat. And I just walked up to him and started doing the, the speech to the people. But I was also giving him some of my inner monologue that I was working on, which is what I would be saying. And he said, what did you just say? And I gave him the inner monologue. He said, you know Something. Bring that out when you do it. Huh. Is there a way that you can do it? He said, speak more of it.
0: I like it. I want to hear it. Cool. Wow. <laughs> Great director to work with. Awesome. How, how was Leonard Nimoy as a director? This is one of the things that interests me most about Star Trek Three. is the fact that it's a story about Spock becoming Spock again, and it's directed by the man who's played Spock since, yes. since the 60s. So what mm-hmm. was it like on set? What sort of vibe does he set?
2: I believe this was the first directing gig that Leonard Nimoy had. Yeah. And so he felt a lot of pressure. You know, there was a lot of pressure on him, but he handled it extremely eloquently. Even when I went in for the audition, he had fan magazines all over the coffee table in his office. And yeah, he reads them. He reads uh-huh. everything that the you know. He read everything that the fans wrote. He read all of the fan articles. He read Starlog. He read you know Cinefantastique. He read you know. He he cared a lot for that whole universe and his own image and everything else. He was a great actor. You know, I love. I just bought the entire In Search of uh, collection. You know, <laughs> from the seventies. I love that show. Uh, He had such an eloquent voice. A lot of people, you know, uh, may be familiar with some of his dramatic work as well. Answer to your question: He was a great director. As a result of that, you know, he cared for everybody on the set and listened to everybody and gave them all their full attention. He never raised his voice. He never got upset. He kept that set running silken smooth the entire time. Sometimes there'd be a question as to whether a shot would work or whether the shot would cut with another shot. Or I used to keep hearing, "Oh, that's the ILM shot. They're going <laughs> to take care of that." You know, and they had a whole book on, IL, on ILM storyboards. You know, that were going to be handled by. ILM, You know, I used to I used to hear a lot of that on the set for the week that I was there. But I he was a wonderful director, an eloquent man, a class act. And it was a privilege and it was an honor. Hey, man. I got to play Spock. (laughs) And not only did I get to play Spock, I got the biggest whopping chunk of all of those young Spocks.
0: You you know,
2: there was stuff in there that really meant something, you know, and I got to Ponfar. My fingers are still sore. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, it was a privilege. And, you know, like I said, I knew a lot of guys on that set. Two of the stuntmen that played Klingons I had worked with before two of the, both of the wardrobe guys uh i had worked with before i had heard of the makeup man Wes dawn he comes from a famous family you know i had known a couple of his family he was guy putting on my ears you know i i knew people on that set and then one day i went to the craft service table to get some coffee or, or juice or something like that and the door to the stage opened And DeForest Kelly came walking in and Walter Koenig came in right behind him and James Doohan came walking in behind him and all the crew, except for Nichelle Nichols, came walking through that door (laughs) in their wardrobe, their uniforms, Wow, you know, and that was a historic event for me. Yeah. You know, and as I mean, they all kind of fanned out into the set because they were getting ready for some of their shots. But I'm sitting there getting coffee, and DeForest Kelly says, Hi, how's it going? And he was a cowboy. (laughs) You know, he really was an honest-to-God cowboy. And I'm sitting there talking to Bones McCoy, man, over coffee. Wow. Or the soundstage, you know. And then they go out to do their thing. That's an honor. That's a privilege.
0: Yeah. It's also great that you were aware of that at the time. You were in the moment you knew that something great was happening and it seems to have had this lasting effect on you. It's so cool.
2: You know, I look at that summer that Star Trek three was coming out was a very big one. I remember when they screened the film at Paramount studios, everybody got to go and see it. And Leonard talk, he said, boy, this is a big summer for a movie. Spielberg just released Gremlins." Temple of Doom was yeah. coming out, Indiana Jones. I mean, I was a fan of my own stuff, too. I was a young guy. Yeah, I read Fangoria. I read Starlog. You know, I liked Snake Plissken, and I love, you know, Logan Five and, you know, Jonathan E. and all of that type of stuff. I mean, who isn't? It's, it's. Uh, I don't want to say it's part of pop culture, but it's it's been so interwoven into our culture now, and especially now. It's yeah. gained more strength, you know. Uh, I don't want to say... So much that, you know, certain people have religions, but yeah, when I'm at Star Trek, this is very important to people when they come to Star Trek. And I get it. I I totally understand it. So I was completely aware of that on the set. And when Leonard was confident that I understood his take on everything too, you know, I think that's what also helped me get the job. I wasn't just going to take it as a job, you know. He said, "I'm giving this to you. There's a responsibility.
0: Can you handle it?" I said, "I got it. I, nice. Let's go." That's awesome. Yeah, because I mean, he's he is very attached to the history of the character. So yes. to hand that to you is a is a huge deal. To say I'm going to let you, uh, I'm going to give you the opportunity to play this character as a young man in the formative moments in the film. When people think of Star Trek and they think of young Spock. Your face mm. is the one that they're going to see in their minds. Like mm. your face is the one that. That they're gonna remember because you had the biggest scenes as Young yes. That's awesome. You have to, re-
2: <laughs> yes, you know, yeah, absolutely. You know, you have to remember that too. I mean, I did go and see the film at the Cinerama Dome. Uh-huh. One of those close-ups, you know, before Robin takes my shakes away, <laughs> it, you know, my face was on the dome. Wow, you know, on that screen, huge, and what? everybody's watching. What does so that feel I like? Well. Being shot, if I hadn't taken the role seriously and delivered what Leonard wanted me to do, you know, that would have been completely irresponsible. Yeah. It was a big burden of responsibility in many, many, many ways, you know.
0: Did people, were people coming up to you that whole summer? Did you get recognized a lot?
2: Not you know something? Not really. Really? Not really. Yeah. That shocks after me. The, yeah, after the film was shot and after the film came out, I was still over at the Beverly Hills Playhouse. So I was in that little theater most of the time. <laughs> uh, but out in public, I don't recall being recognized. One of the reasons was that was after Leonard gave me the job, he looked at myself and he looked at Joe Davis And he said, Joe, we might be able to get away with. He said, but he looked at at me, he said, Steve, we got to get you contact lenses. Mm. So we've got to change your eyes from blue to brown. And as far as I can recall... Joe and I were the very first people to get soft lenses from the guy who made the lenses for, I believe, Body Snatchers and American Werewolf in London and all that. Because wow. kind of. he worked with all the big makeup guys in Los Angeles. He was a doctor that made special lenses for, for people. So they changed the color of my eyes, kind of changed my skin tone. Of course, they put the ear tips on. But you'd be amazed how much that changes your appearance a little bit. Yeah. You know, just just the eye color alone.
0: Man, if I had played Spock— in a movie, I would be like, I would want everyone to know, you know, I'd be like screaming at the top yeah. of my lungs, like I played Spock. And it would have been, uh, it might've, if it was me, I could imagine myself being deflated to not be recognized for that. Did you mm-hmm. have any of that feeling at all?
2: No, no not at
0: all. Not wow. at
2: all. I, I was doing wonderful work at the playhouse. I was learning. I eventually went to the art center. Uh, a couple of people at art center recognized me, but they didn't recognize me from star Trek. We were in a cinematography class. The television was on before class and an episode that I did of The Love Boat that came out (laughs) in 1979 (laughs) where I had an argumentative scene. Alex Cord is is coming after me because I'm hitting on his daughter, who was Nancy McKeon. You know, the little story was she was a gymnast and he had been in the Olympics and he was training her. And I was kind of this rich kid by myself traveling on the ship, had long hair, (laughs) you know. Uh, But I was a good guy underneath it all. Uh, You know, (laughs) Alex Cord was chewing me out for hitting on his daughter. and I was chewing him out back. And everybody went, oh, my God, that's you Uh. on the TV. And then, of course, you know, they they put it together, Star Trek, stuff like that. The thing that was, was cool, I never did a Star Trek convention. Really? That was, actually, that was my next question. Yeah, I, I didn't jump on that bandwagon right away because my life went in a different direction. I ended up going to college, went to art, art Center. My life just went in a different, you know, went down a different path. And I remember vividly Leonard telling me, he said, you know, this is going to stick with you forever, Steve. He said, you'll be doing conventions for the rest of your life. Yeah. And he said, you know, it's this is going to be historic for you, you know. And I, I understood that. But for some reason, I just didn't do any conventions or Star Trek, you know, enter into the Star Trek world outside of the film after the film was done until 2005. Wow. My wife and I were watching Trekkies, and she said, You're doing a convention. And <laughs> the first convention that I went to, uh, Richard Arnold called when he was setting the whole thing up, he called Rob and Curtis on the phone and said, Guess who I have on the phone? She said, Who? Stephen Manley. She said, Oh my God. The first thing she said to me was where the hell have you been for the last <laughs> 25 years? You said, people have been asking me who I had sex with. In that
0: <laughs> That's know, all people said, care about is the sex. Yeah, she
2: said, get your ass to Vegas and uh, yeah. do that convention. And, uh, it's been wonderful. I had people going by and they still remembered who I was. And I was very, very grateful for that. You know, yeah. I, I was fortunate after they shot the film, I did go to the publicity department and they had pages of still pictures of me and they were all on slides and they were able to make duplicates for me. So I had a lot of, of great pictures for fans. Some of the ones that Robin uh, didn't have. And so we've signed, we both signed that one, you know, we're kind of in, mid Ponfar
0: heat. (laughs) (laughs) I wish people could see that you're doing the Ponfar fingers right now. Yeah. 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 The
2: fun, you know, the funniest thing that happened was that first convention, some of the fans said you and Robin Ponfar and she started shaking like that. She said, she looked at me and we put our fingers together and she said, Oh my God, I feel like I'm doing something pornographic. (laughs) (laughs) She, she's great with the fans and she's a, an elegant lady, and people love her. She's, she's great.
0: Yeah. What's it, uh, has that changed your perspective on the experience to come back and do these conventions, you know, 25 years later and see how much of an impact it's had?
2: No, I realize how much of an impact it's had. What's interesting to me is there's young people. 15 to 20 years old who weren't even around when I did that that's yeah midlife crisis <laughs> you know uh, like there's a couple of ladies that come to the Star Trek uh, convention and they're decked out in their original series outfits and they're in their early 20s and they love the original series that's their thing they love the original series they know, they know it backwards forwards inside out etc 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 and Funny story, first convention, my wife's there with me. My wife's a beautiful lady. She said, My goodness, look at all, all these people. They, they they love you. They love your, your work and you're signing pictures. And a beautiful girl comes up. She's 18 years old. And she's decked out in this really sexy Star Trek outfit. And she comes up to my table and looks at me and she says, I'm your other wife.
0: Huh?
2: And I I I looked over at, at Carrie and she said, I think she's going to buy a picture on far with her, you know, (laughs) and this young lady. And I guess there was an episode where Spock was married to to another woman briefly. And so that was the character that she really, really loved. 19 years old. She wasn't even, you know, like I said, she wasn't around even when I did Star Trek three. But she loves the original series. It's really important to people.
1: Yeah. And
2: I had I had a young man who was a Vulcan fan. And he showed up and he he was in, in his teens and he came up in his regalia, you know, masterfully done. He did a great job, great costume, great makeup, everything. And he said, you realize how important this is. You're a part of this world. This is very, very important. You know, it's it's important to people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's great. I love that you respect that too, because it's very important to me. I mean, I'm I'm one of those people that grew up on Star Trek and uh-huh. uh I love that we're living in a day and age where that's no longer something that you necessarily get made fun of. Like, you can, right. you can be a huge nerd and talk about it, and everyone else is a huge nerd, too, so it's fine. I mean, Star Wars is, like, the biggest thing ever that's happening right now. So uh, people love science fiction. People are all about it, and it's a great time to be a fan and to be loud and vocal about it. And fan <coughs> conventions are so fun just to be surrounded yeah, by all those people.
2: Yes. You know, look, I have an Indiana Jones bullwhip made by David Morgan. Okay. cool. (laughs) Uh, I've got a copy of Kurt Russell's Mac 10 from the prop guys that made his his stuff. (laughs) They let me make a mold off of some things, you know, because I dibble dabbled in that thing uh, uh, as well. Uh, It's pop culture. It's very, very important to people. Now, get this. I thought this was specific to science fiction and horror fans. But I love the film Sideways. It's a mm. great movie. You yeah. know, it's Paul Giamatti, Thomas Hayden Church. They go up to Wine Country. So we go up to Santa Ynez every once in a while where that film was shot. We've been going for a long time, and then the film came out. And then all of a sudden you saw Sideways posters all over Santa Ynez. Cool. And he any winery, any restaurant, the hotel that they stayed at, that place got, you know, deluge with yuppie upper middle class Americans who as fans wanted to go and quote, drink and dial inside that restaurant where they <laughs> shot that beautiful scene in the film.
0: I bet there's people screaming, I will not drink the fucking Merlot like all over the exactly.
2: place. <laughs> that's right. They're stand, they stand outside in that alleyway next to the Los Olivos cafe and they all talk about I'm not having any fucking Merlot. People, <laughs> some people don't realize, and I hadn't either. My my friend Chris Cranock, who wrote the idiot, who's directing that, who you may have seen some of those clips from from the idiot, he said the reason he didn't like Merlot was because his wife was a Merlot drinker. You know that yeah. was underlying that whole thing. But there it is, pop culture. We're having pizza at the Los Olivos Cafe, and this rich lady, she had to go in there. And go where the telephone booth was. And she came out to tell her husband, I drank and dialed. (laughs) You know, so it's not just science fiction and it's not just horror fans. When people love something, they want a piece of it.
0: Yeah, I think that's cool. I think that living in a society that celebrates art and culture is important to me. Living in a society where people have ways to express their love of things that have had an impact on them. I think that's awesome. I think that deepens our connection to ourselves. I'm into it.
2: I think so, too. I think so, too. It's terrific also, you know, that we're able to access it as easily as we can. Robin was telling me she went around the world for Star Trek. Wow. She's done uh, conventions in England. She's done signings in France, Germany, you know, everywhere. I think she's been to Japan. I mean, people go nuts. People from all over the world come to the big Vegas uh, Star Trek convention every August.
0: Yeah, It's packed. It's yeah. packed with people, you know. So are you on the regular convention circuit now? Is this something you're going to keep doing?
2: I, I've done the, the Star Trek convention in Vegas several times. I guess that's the biggest one. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're waiting to see if I get into the one this, this coming August. Uh, I've already put in a petition, you know, to be there. Uh, I've, I've done a couple out of town but I haven't really done the convention circuit,
0: Mm. so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, I've been to the Vegas one once and it was like a a pilgrimage. It was great. Yes. It was
2: so much fun. Yeah. It was a, when it was was over at the Hilton, you know, it was very much a Mecca because they they had the restaurant and they had the experience and they had all that, that, that type of stuff. So people, people, yeah, definitely. It was almost like
0: a, a
2: pilgrimage to Mecca yeah. you know
0: I went the last year that they were at the Hilton and when they still had Quark's bar and yes uh, like the the rides and they had the bridge replica it was amazing right. and they actually teleport you at one point there's yes. this you walk into this room and then the lights go down you hear the teleportation sounds you feel a whoosh of air the lights come back up and you're on a transporter pad cuz they actually right. like when they put the lights down they actually have the walls shoot up in the air and then you're right. inside of this uh transporter pad and it, i was like yeah. slack jawed and then you walk out yeah. and you're walking down the hallway and you walk to the bridge of the enterprise d um cool coolest experience i miss that so much it's devastating to me that that got shut down because
2: yes yes uh, i know
0: yeah but it almost makes it more special that i got to experience it because uh, i'm one of those people also where if i'm in a moment that's um that's a big deal to me i try to really center myself in that moment and experience it as much as possible so i have incredibly vivid memories of walking those halls and going onto the bridge and that's something that i'll always have so even though it doesn't exist anymore i'm so grateful to have had that experience it's very cool
2: star trek's going to be with us forever you know uh star trek will be with us forever indiana jones will be with us forever the force is going to be with us forever you know and uh yeah we just watched jonathan E beat the system the other day, <laughs> and watch James Caan, you know, take a, take a lap around that track in triumph as the executives were freaking out, you know, <laughs> at the end of that film. It's, it's going to ring forever.
0: Yeah. Know? So I have to ask you about uh, Grease paint. I watched your short film, and I, oh. I I loved it. I was really impressed by it in a lot of different mm-hmm. ways. Um, it was well-written, well-acted, very well-shot, well-directed. And you uh, wrote and directed this film. Um, yes, so it's these characters during World War II that uh, basically have this like, kind of connection to the afterlife as they're dying. Yes. Very, very interesting. Tell me about this film.
2: Okay. I had been in uh, a cinematography class at Art Center, and like I said, I still kept a toe at the playhouse, you know, to keep my—I didn't want to lose my acting chops. And I was in uh, classes at the Art Center with Tar Sim Singh, Zack Snyder— and my good friend, Nico Soltanakis, my friend who's a film editor, Brad Briggs, Brad cut all the stuff in Zack Snyder's 300 with the fighting scenes in slow motion and stuff like that. It was a very small group of guys, you know, and I wanted to learn filmmaking. And we watched a short film by Roman Polanski. He made it when he was 16 years old, about two guys coming out of the ocean carrying a a clothes dresser that was really unique. I mean, it almost looked medieval in tone. Mm-hmm. And it was a wonderful film. It's about 10 minutes long. And I thought, my God, he made that when he was 16 years old. <laughs> uh, I was 22 years old. I wanted to make a short film. I used my residual checks from Star Trek to fund a very low budget short wow. that took place basically in one location. And Nico helped me out on this. Brad helped me out on this. Tarsim would come by. What are you guys doing over here? You know, <laughs> he's from India. And I wrote this thing. And I cast actors from the playhouse at the time that I knew. And we shot this thing in the basement of the Pasadena playhouse. There's now a restaurant where we built this cabaret set. <laughs> and I shot this thing in a week. Wow. And it was very important to me. I didn't know if I would ever be able to make another film. So it kind of went a little bit on the esoteric, artsy, you know, uh, uh, abstract side. But I tried to do the best that I could with it. My teachers said it's got everything in it that Stephen loves. It's got soldiers, it's got stages, and it's got a woman in her garter belt. It's got everything (laughs) that Stephen likes. And uh, I tried to make this, you know, this, uh, this nice little dramatic warm piece. Yeah. It took one year to make. I learned an awful lot while I was making it. It was basically handmade. You know, there was no. Digital back then, everything was cut with a splicer and a wow. grease marker and stuff, which to me feels feels like a piece of sculpture when you're working on it. It's, it's a wonderful experience, and I sent it out to many, many, many film festivals. There were quite a lot of film festivals that called me a pervert for some reason. Really? I guess I guess because she was dead and she was in her underwear and she was dancing, uh, but the other guys looked just as bad with mud in their mouth and everything yeah. else, you know. But it ended up going to the Houston International Film Festival and top and placed in the top five out of a couple of hundred films from around the world, you know, and the Bravo Channel back in 1990 caught it at that film festival, and they said, would you mind if we showed it on Bravo? And they gave me a little rental fee, and I said, oh, thank you very much, and they aired it on Bravo back when Bravo was a different channel than it is now. Uh, People may not know this or, you know, remember, but Bravo, when it first started, used to show symphony uh, fine art specials. Uh, it would have Bergman, Fellini, Elaine, Renee, they showed opera, they showed ballet, they showed documentaries on Jackson Pollock. It was literally an arts channel, much different than what it and many of the channels have, have changed into now. Yeah. So I was honored. Why? Because the first time that Grease Paint showed, it followed Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal, <laughs> <laughs> right? And it filled the rest of the the half hour out because it was twenty five minutes long, and then they put a you know a Fellini film on after
0: it. Awesome!
2: That's Whoa, so cool. man! Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah! I loved it. It uh, I felt like it had a lot to say. I mean, it gives you an experience. It could have been a silent film and worked just yes. as well, which yes. I thought was fantastic. Um, I was really impressed by. I mean, you say you you know made it on like a shoestring budget. It didn't look like that to me. It looked like you created something out of an old era looked like you shot it in the 40s which was so cool and then i loved the uh, where the characters had props in one Mm -hmm. shot and then you cut back to them and they don't have the prop but they still are making the motion yes it took me it took three times of that happening for me to realize what was happening because i'm like oh he's sword fighting wait he doesn't have a sword in his hand no he does Mm -hmm. have a sword in his hand wait, I think it's coming back and forth. <laughs> it's, uh, or like right. the cards and you'd have the sound of the cards, but you couldn't see yes. the cards. It was very artistically done. Uh, and it really said something to me about war and about what happens to your mind as you, as you die and like, where does the mind mm-hmm. go? It reminded me of Slaughterhouse-Five of the idea mm-hmm. of uh, kind of transporting your mind out of a terrible situation when you're in a terrible situation to sort of um, process and deal in a better way I think, which is part of the human condition is humans are very resilient creatures. We can deal with a lot as long as as long as our mind can sort of take us out of anything that's too traumatic to experience. So, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I'm going to post up a link to it on my website. I hope everyone checks it out.
2: Oh, my. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to shoot. Uh, Again, my friends were very, very creative people. You know, Um, a lot of them have gone on to become powerhouse forces, you know, In and of of themselves. I mean, uh, Tarsem and Nico have have produced and directed some wonderful, beautiful films. Uh, Brad is an an artist all to his own. He came up with all that slow motion editing, you know, for Gerard Butler taking his first few swings at you know (laughs) at the Persians in that in that film uh these guys were were wonderful still are and we're good friends to this day uh many of us still and uh so I had a lot of good help what helped also was rehearsing the film for a few days with the, the actors just in the space after we had built it you know and uh I'm very proud of it I'm very proud of it. It's hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that it's almost 30 years old. Wow. (laughs)
0: Yeah, that's crazy.
2: Yeah, we shot that in 1987. Wow. Wow. But some interesting things. Uh, Jim Howland was a, a, a fellow that I met, and he's still a friend to this day, who had a military antique museum. And he jumped on the bandwagon. And, and provided all the props and costuming for these guys. So all that stuff was real. It was all surplus from the 40s, from Whoa. World War II. You know? All the flags and the banners. I, there was a wonderful illustration uh, student at the time, Eric Olson, who's a teacher now. And he did all of the graphic paintings that are on the walls. And uh, we shot it with double X film stock, which is what they shot Citizen Kane on, <laughs> you know. And uh, there was a French man named Benjamin Bergerie who worked over at Panavision who was able to help uh, students with Panavision equipment if he thought the projects warranted uh, their help. And he took a read at the script and he saw where we were going and Panavision donated us a brand new 16 millimeter camera that they had just developed for the music video world that was beautiful beautiful so they let us shoot with that uh, for the whole thing and wow. so there was a lot of a lot of wonderful help for grease paint so thank you thank you very much not many people have seen it in the last 25
0: years <laughs> well i'm gonna try to change that if i can <laughs> okay thank you very much i yeah. appreciate it so what's what's next for you you have this huge production schedule on imdb um yes so you've shot a lot of stuff recently a lot of it's in post-production what's coming up that you're excited about?
2: uh currently what's going on is a, is a a project called the idiot uh that's di- created directed produced and written by a good friend of mine named chris cranock uh, chris runs an art house cinema up in las vegas called the Mondays art house experience along with a friend of his named vivian martin who's a fine artist painter and every single monday you can go and see a bergman a fellini a david lynch and elaine renee you know avant-garde cinema world cinema Uh, Can film festival winners, things that aren't seen all that much. And it's wonderful. And Chris is a filmmaker. For a long time, we were working on a project of his called The Q Document about Christ in the desert for 40 days. But Chris is very much uh, influenced by all these guys that I just told you about. So it was a very, very esoteric, abstract project. And uh, we got very, very close with it, Michael York. Came very close to signing on the dotted line to play the devil mm. in this thing, but unfortunately, he has an eye illness and oh. wasn't able to do it. So i I've gone from being mean, nasty, horrible characters to playing the lead in Chris Cranock's The Idiot, yeah. which is loosely based on Dostoevsky's, The Idiot. Okay, and, awesome. Uh, it's it's a project. It's being pitched to Netflix. There is interest there. Uh, Two promos have been shot. And also uh, a fundraising campaign was shot uh, this last week uh, to try and help uh, Chris uh, raise a little bit more money. It's a beautiful project. The series has been completely written uh, the first season. Uh, The five years of it have been completely arced out. So there's people over at netflix who are kind of scratching their head and giving this thing a very very serious look and all i can tell you about it is i play a guy named joel walcott who is the ultimate consummate Panglossian. he sees the the good in anything no matter how bad it is and he's been forced into living in an absolutely horrible corrupt world and uh so stay tuned and you know check out the stuff for the idiot to awesome. see more of the adventures of Joel and just kind of what he gets into. It's it's a very touching, touching project. Chris is a magnificent writer, and it's it's a great great piece. I can't uh, wait to check it out. And yes, then,
0: I'm really excited about so, all this stuff you have going on. I feel like I feel like you're one of those people that um, I feel like in a couple of years everybody will have seen something that you're in. And uh. you'll be one of those guys where, like, oh, I've seen him in something, you know, uh, which is such a cool thing to do, you know, to be one of those people that can embody uh, all these different types of characters. Like, I watched your reel. You were playing a a, a neo-Nazi in one of those oh, scenes, yes. <laughs> and you were scary. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's so different from, like, just chatting with you. You're a very, like, effusive, uh, positive person. Like, I, you know, we're just chatting online, but I can – get your good vibes from, from all the way up here in Seattle. So, um, Uh, yeah, so I, I wish you all the best. I'm so excited to have this opportunity to to talk with you and I'm, I'm, uh, I can't wait to check out ghost hunters and I'm sure we're going to see your face all over the place. Now you're getting these amazing leading roles.
2: Oh, thank you, Jesse. Thank you so much. Yes. Look forward to more things, uh, for the idiot. If they go to Facebook forward slash the idiot TV You'll see everything that Chris is, is crafting for that. Uh, of course, uh, Rogue Warrior Robot Fighter comes out later in the summer. I'm not sure when the date is. But July 5th, hey, man, that's the big one. Ghost Hunters hits July 5th. Yeah. So if you really want to see some powerhouse uh, stuff with kind of a unique film for the asylum uh, with some wonderful actors. There's all of us in there. We're very, very proud of it. Liz Fenning, Francesca Santoro, David O'Donnell, myself. Everybody's very, very proud of that. So if you want to see me take on the ghosts <laughs> and everything that happens, put a foot in that door.
0: Awesome. Well, I have to say thank you again. Uh, it means so much to me to get to talk to someone who played Spock. I mean, that's oh. crazy. That's so cool. This is actually going to be my my year anniversary of podcasting. This show will be my year anniversary oh. show. Terrific. so yeah so to have it be with someone who played spock so cool couldn't ask for anything cooler i really really appreciate it thank you so much for your time
2: thank you jesse thanks a whole lot you keep in touch okay
0: we will do and you're welcome back anytime anything you ever want to chat about sci-fi you you hit me up
2: <laughs> thank you my friend thanks right. a whole lot all right we'll all see right. we'll talk to you soon
0: there it is guys steven manley what a guy so we're heading into year two of the podcast And I have some great stuff coming up soon. Uh, I'm going to be gone for a couple weeks. I'm going down to Portland for my sister's wedding. My band is playing our very first performance ever at my sister's wedding. And you all remember Cosmic Child, the song that I've been playing you works in progress as I go along through this first year of podcasting. And that's going to be my sister's first dance with her her new husband at the wedding. We're going to play that song for them to dance to, which is really, really special, really cool, and I can't wait. So Chris and Naomi, my bandmates, will be coming on the podcast very soon uh, After we have our first performance, we're going to talk about how it's been going With playing the sci-fi music And now we'll have some on-stage experience to chat about as well It's a totally different experience to be bringing this music to life Instead of, you know, just recording it by myself in my apartment So I, I can't wait to talk to them about that and of course, we have to get back to one of the core things that we've been doing on the show, which is talking about Star Trek The Next Generation. I'm going to bring Audrey back to talk about the show with us, and then uh, Kayla will be joining us again. Ian is actually out on a ship somewhere, so he won't be joining us this time, but I believe Tiffin Perry will be coming in as well. And she has a lot to say about Star Trek, and I've been trying to get her on the show for a long time. I can't wait for that. And we'll talk about TNG Season 4 I also have a show planned in the near future where we're going to talk about the Mothman prophecies. I talked about this way long ago. I just haven't made it happen yet because so many cool things have come up that I couldn't wait to talk about. But this burning inside of me, I want to talk about the Mothman prophecies. I'm going to have my friends Jamie and Ryan come and talk about that with you. And something very special that I don't think I've even mentioned yet. Remember last time Pete GK was on the show? We were talking about role-playing games, how I'd never played any, like Dungeons & Dragons. So since then, we've been working on getting a group together to play the Star Wars role-playing game live on the podcast. First thing we're going to do is have uh, kind of a meet-and-greet with the players. We're going to talk about how the game is played, because I just don't even know. And then we're going to start building our characters, and then we'll meet again and record an entire session of playing the game together and bring that to you in a future episode. So yeah, it's it's been a beautiful year. It's been... This has been one of the coolest things I've ever done, and it's just kind of lives with me all the time now. I just carry it around with me that I have this thing that that we share together, and uh, just me being here and doing the show is just half the puzzle. The other half is you as the listener, uh, hearing it, just taking it in, and it's it's such a great cycle. It's something that I could just do perpetually. When you decide to start a podcast. You don't really know, if you're me, that you're making a lifestyle choice. You know, it's a change for your entire lifestyle to be putting a show out every week. Uh, it's something that has completely enriched my life. And I'm so I'm so grateful to have the tools that I need to put this out. I'm so grateful that the internet exists, that uh, it gives me this platform to reach directly to you. I'm so grateful that Twitter exists uh, because so many of you have found the show through Twitter. And it's just been wonderful. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And can't wait for more coming up soon. As a special treat for the end of this episode, I finally finished Cosmic Child just a couple days ago. I put the song down for a really long time. I tend to do that when I'm working on a song that's very personal, very close to me like this. I'll get almost to the end of the song, and then I'll put it down. I'll pick it back up a few months later and see how it sounds. See if it's still feeling good to me. Uh, Cosmic Child, I think, is the best song I've ever written. This song just touches something really deep down inside of me that's been there since I was a baby. Uh, this song just kind of touches on how I feel about the universe and how I feel about love and how we all can reach out and find the people that are going to be important to us across any distance. We just feel these connections happening before they even happen. It's just magical. It's something that, that I feel in my life. It's something that I feel when I watch Doctor Who. Uh, I think that they capture that feeling better on that show than any other show I've ever seen. Uh, I uh, felt that way when I watched What Dreams May Come. It's a, a beautiful, brilliant movie. And I f- I feel that when I listen to this song. And uh, that's something that I'm so, just so proud of, that I was able to capture an es- esoteric concept in a song. Um, yeah, man, I'm really I'm really excited about this. So this song is done. I'm going to release it sometime very, very soon. I'm, I'm not 100% sure when still kind of figuring this out as I go, but I wanted to play it for you because you're my, you're my special peeps, my, my podcast listeners. So uh, as a thank you to sticking with me, you are the first people to hear the finished version of Cosmic Child. And I'll see you in a couple of weeks when I get back from the wedding. I'll have stories to share. I'll have bandmates to talk to. We'll have Star Trek to talk about. It's going to be a beautiful year too. I'll see you soon.